Welcome to Oxpods, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. The survival of offspring is essential for the continuation of species, and yet we see a huge diversity in how much parental care is provided to offspring across the tree of life. So how necessary is it to provide care to your young, and what determines the different strategies employed by differing species? I'm Joe Woodman, a biology PhD student in the Edward Gray Institute of Field Ornithology. And today I'll be talking to Professor Ashley Griffin, who studies why selection favours social behaviour in the context of reproduction. So thank you very much for joining us on on Oxpods. In this episode, we're going to talk about parental care. So just to start off with, can you kind of define what parental care actually is, how it kind of manifests in animals, and also maybe an idea of what kind of specific physiologies or maybe morphologies or even behaviours are involved in Parental care. Yeah, sure. So um, parental care is something that we do as humans. So I think we all have a fairly intuitive grasp about what parental care can be. Uh, looking after offspring, basically, and, and making sure that they survive to adulthood. Um, so like a so gestation, provisioning of, of uh, developing fetuses in, inside um, females' body is a form of parental care. Um, and then after post-birth, then your offspring are going to need feeding, they're going to need protecting, um, and and that can be, you know, that can involve direct feeding or it can involve leaving a food source okay, um, with yeah. your offspring and sort of leaving them to get on with it. So there's different kinds of provisioning as well. Some species are like some digger wasps or these uh, um, solitary wasps that, that build little burrows and lay an egg in those burrows and then bring a, a big fat juicy a beetle larva okay. paralyze it shove it down the hole close the hole over and then then they just fly off right, right? Okay, yeah. and then when the when their egg hatches it feasts on this uh, on this beetle larva and instead of a, a beetle coming out of the burrow uh, a wasp comes out oh okay yeah, yeah. so that's that's <laughs> pretty okay but you know it's not it's not all sort of you know uh birds feeding it in the nest or yeah. you know there's um quite a, a incredible diversity of different ways that the or, or animals do it do you also see a lot of diversity in whether it's the the male or the female or or both so in that digger wasp could would the male and the female do that or is that something that's done by one and or the other uh, i think it is just the female from yeah. that in that example uh mammals so like the the gestation is obviously like a very special feature of mammals right so um, most other animals like will lay eggs and um, and the, the embryo stage will happen outside of the female body mm. and we are like quite special in that we have like a, a uterus and we have the develop part of the development happening inside um, the body of the parent so the mammals are mainly female based care humans are quite unusual in the in the extent to which males contribute to to care among mammals mm. right so Normally, it's just the females that look after young in mammals. But in other taxa, male care is dominant. So in fish, for example, about 90% of fish species that provide offspring care, that's provided by the male. Maybe a kind of important establishing question is why parents actually care for their offspring. So it might seem really obvious, but it can't be so obvious, right? Because if the answer was obvious, then all animals would provide the same amount of care. There wouldn't be any diversity. So specifically why why do parents care for their offspring the really the key to understanding it is to think about about the the fact that we're really talking here about multicellular organisms yeah okay so 
any we start off as single cells all multicellular organisms start off as one cell so as a zygote and you've got to go from from a, like a fertilized egg a zygote to a functioning organism and and how you, and to do that you need resources and and you need to be protected against environmental challenges or predation or whatever it is single cell organisms don't have that they're you know they they divide by fission and then they've got two cells and there's not really we you know there's not really any need for the for the parent cell to further provision that the the daughter cell so it's really about sort of getting a, a a single cell to a functioning independent organism so then what is it about different organisms that means you see this diversity and how much care is provisioned because it still sounds like in that scenario that every multicellular organism needs to get to that stage so why isn't it that an exact equal amount of care is given to all organisms no matter what species they are so it really it really comes down to like what stage does an organism have to get to in order to be able to look after itself? And so some for some species, that's, that's kind of early on. And a really nice example of that is a plant, right? So plants provide parental care in the form of seeds. So in order, again, like, so that you've got the single cell that has to get to a plant and it has to be able to photosynthesize in order to get its own energy. To begin with, it's completely reliant on um, the energy that's provided in the seed. So if you plant a bean, for example, it's a mm. nice easy one because it's because it's sort of fat and easy to watch. Yeah. But um, but you can see that there's plant there's loads of like energy packed into that into those bean and that uses that to grow very quickly into this lovely bean. And then once it's got the its green leaves um, out, then it can then it can photosynthesize and it's off. Okay. But it can't get to that stage on its own. It needs to have nutrition in the seed. So for plants. Um, it's really, you know, like a, a, plant, a seedling doesn't have to be very big or very advanced in its development in order to be able to look after itself. But something like a human baby, right? It yeah. needs, you know, it, it, humans are, have got a very long period of, of care, even like, you, you know, not just in our advanced age where we have to look after offspring into their 30s yeah. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, just so even, you know, like... Um, uh, across human societies, the the the, the demands, the length of time that we look after offspring is long, and that's because um, you know for other species, there's a, it's not possible to just fend for yourself when you're a baby. You know, you mm. need to have like some sort of like um, there's some social structure. So lots of primate species like bonobos, parental care will extend beyond adulthood in the same way that it does for in in our in humans where females will support their sons in mm. in conflicts and uh, and and sons will use their mother for protection so there's still like sort of some benefit to 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 getting help from your parents yeah. even after adulthood so contrasting that with our seedling example I hope that makes that clear is that it depends on when you can be independent so what else do you need to consider when thinking about the kind of likelihood of certain parental cares actually evolving because in that seed example there's a clear benefit of having that kind of store of nutrients but presumably there would actually be an even greater benefit if it was given even more nutrients or if there was some sort of alternative world where plants could walk around and it provided care to the seeds that would be actually even more beneficial so so what's limiting it why can't it evolve into a situation where that benefit is heightened somehow so 
you've hit on a like a really key concept there in uh, in this field of research which is a, is the is the concept of a trade-off so um some seeds some plants will produce one massive seed right like a coconut is a one massive seed right well they could produce more than one yeah. but they're if they put those resources the same resources into producing small seeds they could produce hundreds and thousands of them but they don't they produce like more like tens in, in a season right but the trade-off is you've got certain amount of resources available and you have to decide whether you're going to make one massive baby for those resources or a thousand tiny babies or somewhere in the middle so that's the seed example but could you also use that in terms of different physiologies behaviors maybe as well um, where it's kind of a choice of investing loads into one situation or a little bit into lots or somewhere in between yeah so you joe work on birds yeah, and white and blues, yeah, right yeah, yeah and some of really important studies in that have taken place in the in the white and um, woods bird study uh where um biologists have tried to understand what what it is that determines a clutch size so how many eggs a bird will lay biologists have done that and they've worked out what the, the you can work out from uh, um in mathematical models um what the exact clutch should be Mm. yeah and it's called the lack clutch mm-hmm. so if you come to university to do biology you will hear about this a lot mm-hmm. it's a it's a really uh, important um, concept in evolutionary biology and it's simply like the optimum number of offspring to produce where you maximize the number of adults produced so if right. you go above the lack clutch your offspring are too small because you made too many small babies and they're not there's chance of their survival is therefore impaired mm. if you don't make enough then you'll be outcompeted by your neighbour who's making more offspring. So they're going to send out more off, more offspring into the next generation than you will. So there's like a sweet spot, okay. which is the lack clutch. So yeah. it's kind of evolution pushing towards this optimum. Yeah. And then does that optimum, it not just applies to the number of offspring, but also how much that parent is actually investing in terms of, you know, feeding, if it's the case of birds, or uh, how much resource is in that seed. It's just about enough, but not so much that it's costly or is there another way of thinking of that so there's a there's two different ways in which so they're thinking about birds there's two different strategies that birds have one is you lay an egg you ignore it you lay another egg and you leave it in the nest and you keep doing that until you've reached your your optimum clutch size and then you start incubating so you only sit on it once all your eggs are laid mm-hmm. and, and that means kind of parent, that's where parental curse starts you mean this kind of incubation is this and then there's so the incubation yeah. is like then you then because the heat of the of the of the parent on sitting on the eggs which kickstarts their development and all the chicks um, develop at the same rate and the hatch at the same size okay that's one way of doing it and the other way of doing it is to sit on your eggs as soon as you've laid them. And in, the, in that way, you set up a hierarchy of sizes. So you lay an egg and you, and you, and you sit on it. So that egg will be the big chick. Yeah. And then yeah. the one that you uh, lay last will be the little chick. Now, the provisioning after that is affected, right? So now you don't have eight chicks of all equal t- chance of, being, of, of developing to adulthood. You have set up a hierarchy of a big fat, bully chicks and little runty chicks and that can be a good strategy um, where times are tough and you and birds aren't sure of how many they're going to be able to raise to survival mm. so they deliberately feed the biggest chick whereas in the other example like great tits in whitenwoods the, the birds try to feed the hungriest chick it'd be useful actually to use that example of this asynchrony and hatching in, in lots of birds of prey maybe 
to think about how this term coined Hamilton's rule plays into parental care and offspring provisioning. So can you explain what Hamilton's rule is and why or what how it's important in the parental care, specifically with regard maybe to kind of what a parent wants and what the offspring wants? Sure, yeah. Um, so Hamilton's rule, the easiest way to put it, to think about it, is just that it's like economics, okay? So it's like an economic decision that an animal makes. And by that I mean it uh, has to decide, I'm going to put in this certain amount of resources, yeah? So I'm going to pay something, what am I going to get out of it, right. yeah? yeah? So it's a cost-benefit ratio yeah so it's uh, a way of um, predicting about what you know what will be optimal behavior do you predict a parent will invest in an off in a certain offspring the um, special thing about Hamilton's rule which is a little bit different from just you know a straightforward cost benefit analysis mm. is that the the benefit is measured in terms of the benefit to another individual so you're saying if I pay a cost how much will that benefit another individual now, if you don't get any benefit in terms of reproductive success, so that's that's what's being measured here, it's right, number so of offspring. Ben- yeah. yeah, not money because we're, <laughs> we're in nature now. Yeah. So it's number of offspring. So it's saying if I pay a cost, so I'm paying some resources, it means I make less offspring. How much will that benefit the other individual? And if that other individual is related to you, right? So say it's your clone mate, you're identical, then, then you're related by one. Right, so you so you value that individual exactly. That individual is genetically identical to you, and so equally valuable in terms of passing genes on to the next generation. Yeah, doesn't make any difference whether you have kids or they have kids. Mm. It's the same in terms of genetic representation in the future. So Hamilton's rule is basically saying, do that cost-benefit calculation, except that you're making a prediction about a social behaviour. So how how will the other individual benefit? Parental care is like... um, it's maybe like not always like the most useful way of thinking about it because you're looking after offspring. So mm. that's like your benefit, you know, because you're getting a reproductive benefit out of it. But sometimes um, where, where we use Hamilton's rule more often is when we're talking about cooperative breeding. And cooperative breeding is where you where offspring are not looked after, cared for by their parents, but they're cared for by other adults in the group. Okay. Thinking about meerkats is maybe some, a familiar example okay. that people might have seen on telly. They share the care for the offspring and their Hamilton's rule can be super useful for making predictions about who should help. Meerkats are, are great babysitters. They live, they live in the desert and it's really hot and it's full of snakes and, and, and raptors and lots of things that want to eat baby meerkats. Okay. But the meerkats have to go out forage, but they don't want the ch- pups to come with them. So the pups stay in the burrow and the problem is the meerkat pups have got absolutely no sense of self-preservation whatsoever and they will just wander out and be, you know, be eaten. So babysitters literally having like, you know, like you've seen like um, people from nursery trying to corral kids and stop them from running off. That's what baby meerkat and they feed them as well when they're like round about the burrow. Now that meerkat's there all day long, it's not foraging for itself and it loses like about an eighth of its body weight. Right. And you can imagine, like, if it did that a lot, then it would it would impair its chance to breed itself. It's not the parent of the offspring in the burrow. It's the, the big brother or big sister, for example. That behaviour has been favoured because either it's getting some fitness as a result of looking after brothers and sisters, which will share their genes, okay. or 
by caring for the offspring, it has some benefit to itself in terms of its offspring production in the future by increasing the number of available helpers for when it's trying to breed. Mm. These little pups it's looking after are going to look after its pups in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a kind of roundabout way. It's not necessarily one route, but through that care, its genes are going to be more represented exactly. in the future generations. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah. Going back now to thinking about kind of general patterns of how parental care evolves. So I was wondering if you could explain what intrinsic biological differences there are between males and females and why that might lead to differences in how much they want to invest in the production of offspring. That's a big question. Yeah, sorry, it's a lot. Let me just start with something uh, basic, which is that females are um, have big gametes and males have little gametes. Yeah. Yeah, so eggs and sperm. And that means that, that females from the offset have um, this, this uh, precious resource and they're trying to maximise the quality of those few eggs. Whereas the males that have the small gametes, they maximise their reproductive success by mating with as many females as possible. So there's a numbers game. For females, it's a quality game. Okay. So there, that sort of sets up females to be um, to be selected to, to um, invest in making sure that their few offspring survive. And, then, and it means that males are selected, all else being equal, to mate with as many females as possible. But some species, and lots of species of birds, which are biparental, there's like a, a, a trade-off for males that you either stay and help or you can go off and mate with other females. Mm-hmm. But females don't have that option. They've got a nest with some eggs in it and that's it. Whereas right. males can have eggs in many, many nests around. Okay. Yeah? So because the females have kind of already used the eggs, you mean they've produced an egg, whereas the male still has... Exactly. She's got no egg. eggs left, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, all her eggs are literally, literally in one them. basket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So whereas he can go off and, and meet with other females and have eggs in all the other baskets. So there's a trade-off there, right? Either he goes off and, and tries to get additional mates or he stays to help. It can't do both. So there's what's called an opportunity cost to helping for males. Help provision the young, but, um, but that incurs a cost in terms of like their mating opportunity with other females, right? So that sort of explains roughly like the, the fact that females are mainly the carers mm. in, um, across taxa. In fish, fish are weird, right? Because the males are the ones that are providing the majority of the care in the majority of species. Now there, um, we've done some uh, recent uh, work. Um, well, I've done some recent work with Jonathan Green, who's another member of the of the department here, where um, we showed that the males pr- pr- protect eggs from predators and they can also aerate them. So they need oxygen. So he fans okay. them. Some fish, like male fish, actually store their eggs in their mouths. So they're called mouth brooders right. or make little nests, beautiful little nests out of bubbles. So there's lots of different, you know, cool things that they do. But basically, normally they've got a nest and the egg, females come along, lay their eggs in the nest. He um, will fertilise them by releasing sperm over them and defend them and he might have multiple females coming to visit him and laying eggs in his nest now that's that's really important because it's very different from the scenario i've just described about the opportunity cost that bird male male birds might have yeah females find parental care sexy okay in fish right right that's yeah so all he has to do is guard his eggs he looks super hot to all the fish females they'll just come and lay eggs for him in his nest and then go off so he doesn't have to go anywhere or do anything there's no opportunity cost to providing care and lo and behold 
we see lots of male care in fish. Would it be possible to predict parental care, uh, the type of parental care strategy employed based on a kind of combination of species-specific biology in terms of how the males and females are different in their biology, but also considering the environments they live in? Absolutely. Yeah, I think we're absolutely at that point uh, now. So um, birds are another good example of that. There are some birds that where males only provide provide all the care. Ostriches, rheas, cassowaries, the, the, yeah. those ones that walk about in two legs and yeah. don't fly. Most of them are male-only care. Um, and to get to to answer your point, the you know you can almost predict that because of the ecology, they feed on seeds. Um, chicks don't need much provisioning. They're like they're precocious, uh, we say, so they're able to almost like fend for themselves as soon as they hatch because they just have to pick up seeds from the from the ground. Right. Okay. They don't need like they're not like great tit chicks where where there's like a massive effort it takes to. Um, to feed them um, and so the ecology is sort of set up to we'd predict like that chicks could be you know could uh, seed eating chicks in the Serengeti could be uh, pretty uh, precocious and they're like fish because females will come and lay eggs in, in, in a male's nest and so he can have massive nests which he could not possibly feed himself but he doesn't have to because they're the ecology means that they're able to survive on their own. So considering how there's this kind of interaction between the environment or ecology of a species and also the kind of differences in in males and females within that species and how you can predict maybe what parental care strategy is going to evolve from that, does that kind of hold any implications when we're considering conservation of species? Are people now considering how best to kind of conserve species depending on their parental care strategies that are employed because you can imagine then that actually it might be that you want to target certain aspects of a population if for example mothers are much more important in the kind of output of a population than fathers then maybe you want to focus on conserving that is that something that's kind of feeding through into conservation or is it functionally quite difficult to do that I guess I don't know if um, conservation efforts are that fine-tuned to target specific sexes. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like the opposite. So if you're trying to control numbers of things, then you might kill the, the caring sex. So like for red right. deer on rum, for example, one of yeah. the problems is, in Scotland, one of the problems is that people want to um, kill stags. But because of the antlers, you know, the prestige of, 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 of that. But this actually doesn't have much effect on population size right because of the females that are that are the females that are the the so yeah. i might be wrong about that but yeah. it would be my my yeah. thought that, that i mean i suppose really that there. is a kind of if it works one way then yeah theoretically absolutely yeah absolutely yeah for sure so we're kind of running out of time but it's been really interesting i guess the final thing i wanted to ask which has been touched on a few times actually a little bit is is it possible to kind of use all of this research that's gone into parental care Um, and we've mainly been talking about the animal kingdom, a little bit about plants as well. Can we use that research to help us to better understand how parental care happens in humans and kind of family dynamics in in the evolution of humans? Yeah, so um, that's a really good question. Um, One of the, and I think that we probably overestimate the extent to which we're different or special. In terms of like fundamental aspects of the way that we, uh, our life history, what we call life history traits, our lifespan, the number of offspring we have, uh, those those aspects of what it means to be human are are pretty like predictable. Mm -hmm. 
when we compare ourselves to other species. As in similar to kind of our closest ancestors, you mean, or...? Well, like, even actually not. So there's a... I did some work a few years ago on the extent to which males care about loss of paternity. So that's a really good example of something that feels like quite emotive, you know, like uh, loss of paternity, females um, mating with another male, yeah. so that the mate, so that the offspring in her nest or house or or burrow, are not the offspring of her mate. Um, and males can respond to that situation in different ways. They can either ignore it and care for the offspring as if they're their own, or they can desert. Mm. Yeah, say, so, well, I'm not worth. It's not worth investing here because these offspring are not mine. And human males uh, behave in that situation exactly as you would predict, um, given the pra- given the cost of producing offspring and the chance of be of uh, and the chance of being uh, of females mu- mating with multiple males. Given those parameters, human males do exactly what you'd predict and are exactly the same, in fact, in the parameter space that they occupy as burying beetles. <laughs> right okay yeah. yeah so so a lot of the the, the uh, behaviors that we um that you know we, we can understand our behavior um through comparison with other species in quite fascinating and surprising ways that's, yeah that's really interesting do you think the diversity of parental care strategies in humans or maybe the lack of diversity depending on what on which way you look at it has that been important in the development of human societies as well family dynamics that's such an important part of how a lot of people would consider human societies existing but actually a big part of family dynamics within multiple human cultures often revolve around how parents care for their offspring so if that's something you can predict through evolution i think that's um that's really interesting yeah absolutely the number of offspring that people that humans have as well is also like a really interesting area because of like you know um predicting human population size in the future uh, and patterns of of uh, of, of uh, I want to say I almost said clutch size, uh-huh. <laughs> but the number of you know the size of families, human families, is is you know we and again something that you think of as being very personal and maybe you know like a, a cultural is actually we you know evolutionary biology can say a lot about you know why the optimal clutch size why oh said it again <laughs> why the family size is so much bigger in some circumstances than others and um yeah so we can absolutely use evolutionary biology to understand ourselves for sure more than we more than we probably imagine yeah that's great cool thank you very much ashley that's been really interesting thank you thank you for listening to this episode of oxpods if you enjoyed it please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk.